Good morning, guys. Welcome to the show where we talk about your emotions, how to regulate them, how to manage them. Even when it's raining outside, maybe you can hear that. But yeah, the regulation of your emotions so you can cultivate discipline, get your willpower back, make decisions you want to make, which is ultimately an impossible task. Nobody ever really does it well. I mean, we can do it better. I don't know, define well, right? But nobody really ever does it 100%, that's for sure. There's always more to do. But we got to work at it anyways, right? Because even if we make a 5% change, that's not a 5% change. That is 5% compounded. Right? You, you want to know why uh, 5% of the people have 95% of the wealth or you know whatever it is because they understand what compound interest is. I'm not talking about with money alone, although that may be part of it. I'm talking about just setting up certain conditions from which, and it doesn't have to be a huge shift, but just the right shift at the right point, right the pressure point. I mean, how many freaking analogies can I think of here? Just push on the pressure point and... All the other dominoes will fall like a house of cards. <laughs> Checkmate. <laughs> um, but you can't do it perfectly. You could just do it better. So it just builds and builds. It's like farts in a way, I guess. <laughs> because, uh, you know, there's always great room for a fart analogy. Because farts... Y you can't rid yourself of farts. That would be ridiculous. Why would you want to eat in a way so you never fart again. I mean, that's, not only is that no fun, but to start with, sure, you could probably do that, where you just stick to a very certain diet, eat the same thing every day, and life becomes monotonous. At least your, your uh, dinner life, your food life becomes monotonous, whatever. So you could do that, but then you don't fart. Which is uh, no fun because farts are awesome. I mean, farts are the greatest joke of all time, objectively. But if your gas is too much, right? If you have gas pain, searing gas pain, uh, then, okay, then there's an issue. Let's work on that. And let, let's maybe adjust what you eat. But let's not do it too much to the point where you're eating the same thing every day. Because, yeah, now you're not farting. But that, that also means that you're not trying anything new. You're not challenging yourself. You're not going to that new... Ethiopian restaurant down the street so that's another problem so if you do quote-unquote solve this problem 100% that just leads to more problems now you're probably just avoiding things because you don't want the pain you're so afraid of getting serious gas pain that you won't even let yourself fart and then you get more comfortable with the farts and yeah then you start to realize they're the funniest thing ever and to not fart would just be you know it's like, who are you? Did you even have a personality? Do you, do you have an identity? Do you have like an, your own idiosyncratic nature? Like everybody's fart <laughs> smells, smells slightly different, right? Um, sorry if this is getting too cerebral for you guys, but you know, I'm just, uh, you know, way ahead of the curve here with so many things, including uh, fart analogies. But, but speaking of idiosyncratic farts, I'm gonna be out of town the next few weeks, going to Egypt. Is a trip that's a long time coming on guys I'm so psyched for it I can't even begin to talk about how psyched I am for it because it would completely derail this show this episode here uh, but I'm going with my buddy Derek yeah speaking of <laughs> idiosyncratic farts and Derek has farts and they smell I mean I could smell that fart from a mile away that that is a Derek fart <laughs> 
So if he doesn't fart, what I'm going to do is after he poops, I'm going to have to run in the bathroom and, and smell as quickly as I can. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's your buddy's fart. And that obviously smells terrible, but it's hilarious. So the point is, is I'm going to be out of town for the next few weeks. I'm going to be in Egypt, and I will be back the week of the 27th. So there won't be a few videos. Uh, I will won't be on Twitter or anything. I know. Where where are you gonna guys gonna find your your weekly dose of wisdom and fart analogies? Well, I have a bunch of other videos here on this channel, so you can go check out those. You uh, watched or listened to all of them? Well, then <laughs> go <laughs> go seek help or something because something's wrong with you okay so the question for this week is i got a uh some responses to my video on gaber mate and my criticism of him from one listener jessica and she says what i don't understand about gaber mate is that my criticisms of him you know what i brought up that he didn't really understand which is you need to raise kids a different way depending on how old they are he misses the point of generational trauma um he doesn't understand you know he, there's this constant em emphasis on if you're a parent you need to be you need to act calm in a certain situation but that really doesn't help at all you actually need to be calm you need to work on yourself to the point where you are in fact calm you don't have to act calm because kids are really good you're just acting calm they're really good at picking up on oh this is an act mommy daddy they're trying to cover up for the true emotions uh, so I'm not gonna be calm right I'm going to respond to them as if they were in freaking out because that's really what they are doing they're just trying to act in a way they're not right like the, the one of my fam favorite studies that seems to keep getting replicated is so what determines whether a child is afraid of a dog whether the mom's afraid of the dog or dogs in general. So the mom learns this and she says, oh, my child is just picking up on my emotional frequency, my emotional vibration when, whenever I'm around a dog. I, I understand this and this is where my child becomes afraid of the dog and you know, makes that association classical condition kind of thing. So I understand this. So now what I'm gonna do is whenever I'm around a dog, I'm going to act like I'm not afraid and does this help the child become less afraid? No, of course not. Just one of these things that Gabor Mate just gets a little bit incorrect. Although, I like Gabor Mate. I like a lot of what he says. I agree with most of what he says. But I'm just making the point that this is a clear indication while he has a lot of facts right. And, and I'm not just talking about Gabor Mate. I'm not bringing this up to, to pick on Jessica here. I'm bringing this up because... This is the main problem in the field. This is what the field gets wrong. This is what I say in the opening paragraph or introduction, whatever, in my book. Psychology has tons of useful facts, but no theories, no way to conceptualize and contextualize those facts. That's what makes it a fledgling field. That's why I say it's in its infancy. It is in its pre-Socratic state. Great, tons of facts. But you quickly realize that just having the facts doesn't help that much. I and, and just to give you context on this, um, just to give you context, let me bring in two other examples. So this is what I always say about critical race theory in graduate school. 
Critical race theory says that your, your big three health outcomes in life, big three mental health outcomes, health, physical health, wealth, money, success, and relationships, health, wealth, and relationships, what those are primarily determined by, primarily, is your race or the culture you live in. Or if we're going to put this in a feminist context, the patriarchy or the fact that you're a female and you're conditioned to be a certain way because you are a female. And it is because of the patriarchy. Now, obviously, when I criticize critical race theory, my critique of the critique, I don't, I obviously understand that our race, our ethnicity, our sex, uh, our gender identity, whatever, obviously, these things affect us. That's not what I'm criticizing the CRT and, and the Marxists and, and the wokeism in universities for. Of course, there's some truth in it. That's what makes these ideologies powerful, is because they can look at truth and say, well, if you're black, clearly in America, your big three uh, mental health outcomes, you know, health, wealth, and, and relationships, those are going to hurt. Those are going to be less ad advantageous than your white American counterparts. And I would never deny that for a second. But what does CRT get wrong? Is it the facts? No, it's the context. It's the context to say that your race or your gender, your ethnicity, your sex is the primary determinant of, your, of the big three outcomes in your life is to completely undercut why therapy exists in the first place. And this is why it's something worth openly rebelling against in academia and why it's worth getting kicked out of grad school for this. Because if these theories take hold, then therapy is no longer therapy. What therapy turns into is a validation fest, a complaint fest, and ultimately activism. Now, activism, I would argue, is never really right. Uh, can be in certain small scale, you know, lo local government uh, situations. But validation, validation of emotion, validation of feelings of oppression, validation of feelings, um, and even complaining sometimes. Right? I get it. That is a helpful part of therapy that is included in a healthy therapeutic process. However, I only think that's step one. In fact, I know that's step one. There's other steps there. And if you just take this neo-Marxist uh, CRT view to therapy, what you ultimately get is the devolution of therapy. Now, again, what is wrong with critical race theory and the wokeism? Are their facts wrong? Well, some of their facts are wrong. But I think what makes it such a powerful ideology, what makes all wrong yet powerful ideologies powerful is because they, there is some truth there. Of course, you know, you look at typically marginalized groups and their, their big three outcomes aren't that great compared to other groups. Now, you're focusing on one reason. I think there's a hundred other reasons why and one fundamental reason why if therapy is even going to exist as a field in the first place, and that fundamental reason, of course, is your consciousness, your consciousness and your liberty. That's why the, the subtitle of my first book, The, the uh, Integrated Principles of Consciousness and Liberty, those are fundamental because without those two things, then therapy doesn't exist. Let's just move on to another, but let's get rid of the therapy. Let's get rid of psychology. It just becomes sociology. 
And that's fine if that's your worldview, but then, then we have a whole philosophical view on on why those things uh, need to exist ultimately. And I think to have any intellectual endeavor, we need those things. But that's, that's for a different video. So you understand why the context matters more than anything, and it's not what you say so much as what you don't say that can be a huge impact, and why I criticize Gabbard Monte, because if I was to go on a show, and maybe he brings this up in his book, okay, I'm not going to read the book to find out. I don't, I really don't care because, again, I'm not criticizing Monte. I'm criticizing this worldview as represented by how I can, uh, you know, how I listen to his interviews on these podcasts. I also listen, Jessica recommended I listen to Tim Ferriss 620, which I did that has Gabriel Monte on him. Okay, that, that's one of the benefits of, uh, <laughs> of uh, listening to or watching such a small, unpopular, perhaps boring channel. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we may not be culturally relevant, but if you, if you write comments and criticize me and complain about something, I'm going to listen to them and you may, you know, affect my day. And that it gets me to, to, if you want me to listen to something, you want me to read something, I probably will. Because, hey, what else do I have going on? And I appreciate the criticism, Jessica. I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I love it. I, you know, I love arguments. It's, uh, whew. I would say it makes me feel alive, but I think it's more it makes me feel calm. That's my issue. Like I just got in a, a fight with the neighbor uh, yesterday. It's just like no big deal, but, it, you know, whatever. We're going to work through it. It doesn't matter. But just as soon as I feel the pushback, it's like, oh, yes, thank you. Uh, I need this. Maybe that is feeling alive. Calm, but alive. So does that make it more clear what I'm getting at here? Is that Gabramante, when he talks about child rearing and how certain emotional environments are the most helpful for children, he needs to make a clear distinction between, let's just say generally, before 18 months and after 18 months. Before 18 months, you console, you caress, you hug, you know, the, the child's emotions are in charge. After 18 months, you begin to separate a little bit. You still, of course, validate the child's emotions, but you're not there to console the child. Yeah, you console them, but less and less until they're, you know, 8 to 10 to 12. And then it's just an adult. Still, you validate the emotions just because it's the healthy thing to do to connect. You know, you relate how you connect. Yeah, probably when the child's an adolescent, you talk with them more like they're your friend. They're not your friend, but more like that. It steers more in that direction. If they're going through a particularly emotionally difficult time, you relate with them. I mean, this is probably more, more appropriate for you to relate. Not about a similar situation, but that similar feeling of frustration if your adolescent child is in fact frustrated. Now, Gabber Mate does mention this a little bit for about, I'll be generous and say five minutes in this Tim Ferriss podcast, but he's, it's, he's not explicit about it. And it's just fascinating to me because when I, and again, I need to repeat myself, this is not a criticism of Mate. And another point of reference I have for this is because in graduate school, I was in graduate school for six freaking years. I know what people focus on. I know what people ignore. And people ignore this very crucial aspect of our brain development. Is that we require different uh, stimulus for our brain to develop properly at different stages. 
based on how our brain develops. And it's, we talk about it, it's mentioned, but again, it's probably, you know, I'll say five minutes in. I was in graduate school for six years and that topic came up in class. Now I did a lot of study of it on my own. I wrote papers about it, but that topic came up about for about five minutes out of six years. Now, that tells me that there's tons of useful bits of information in psychology, like I say, but very little context in which to put that information if you don't focus on this crucial aspect. And, it's, and obviously this is crucial to talk about because it, you could actually be traumatizing a five-year-old as much if you treat him like a six-month-old as, as you treated a six-month-old if, if you treated him like you would a five-year-old or a 50-year-old. The six-month-old is crying and you said, hey, buck up. You got a man up and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I don't care if you're frustrated. You know, facts don't care about your feelings. If you say that to a six-month-old, yeah, that's traumatizing. But if you do the opposite and caress and make sure that the, the, the five-year-old always feels comfortable. And, you know, like, like I mentioned in the, uh, as an example, you know, very common. Because I know what happens. I talk to people. When, when I'm at a party and somebody mentions they're in therapy, I'm not afraid to ask them about it, right? I'm not afraid to go, ooh, you don't bring that up. You know, this, this is what you talk about in ethics class in graduate school. I, I've been to three of them. They go, oh, well, what if somebody mentions that they're in therapy? Do you mention you're a therapist? Oh, all this stuff. It's like, how about you just talk to them like they're a normal person and ask them questions? This is a, a great opportunity. Oh, they have two and a half cocktails in them? Let's learn more. You know, maybe we're going to get some more honest feedback. And this is what people uh, simply don't understand. Their intuition, when their five-year-old is frustrated doing a task, putting a puzzle together, they hear Gabber Mate, and then they go, oh, I don't want my child to be frustrated. They were kind of tuning out for that five minutes, and again, I'm being generous, where he was talking about how you treat children of different ages in a different way. They, they tuned that part out so they didn't really get that. And they're not going to read his book because, again, it's a glorified blog post. Uh, so when their five-year-old is frustrated putting the puzzle together, they go, oh, we have to have a calm, safe, you know, not a emotionally intense environment to raise a child. I'm, I'm just going to go do the puzzle for them. And that is, is as damaging to the five-year-old. Well, probably not as damaging, to be fair, because, but effectively. Effectively, it is as damaging to the five-year-old as ignoring the emotions of the six-month-old. Now, let's say this podcast is 90 minutes long. You know, he spends 89 minutes talking about, effect, you know, talking about, you, you got to pay attention to the, the six-month-old. You know, they, they need to be validated. Again, that's all true. But you have to question somebody when they go on a podcast like this and speak for 90 minutes and they don't make that crucial distinction. You need to question somebody's motives when they talk about the big three health outcomes and all they discuss is race or gender or uh, ethnic identity, whatever, and they don't talk about the hundred other things or they say, oh, that's no big deal. It's just this one thing that you happen to not be able to control at all that happens to be politicized at this moment. You need to question how well those people really understand. I was going to say intentions. It's, it's, no, it's not about like evil intentions. They're just stupid. 
because you think knowledge is learning a bunch of facts and it's not you study psychology or philosophy for two seconds and you realize that's not what this is about at all it's about honing in on what is fundamental and this isn't just about psychology i know i'm probably not going to get through to jessica that's not important these things need to be said it's not just about psychology it's about any field of endeavor whatever field you're in it's not about learning facts it's about learning about what's fundamental in that field i don't know what it is for your field i know what it is for psychology and therapy talk about my book right my my program the therapy that i do the only three things that matter another example of this is i was listening to uh, dr phil on rogan so this is another rogan interview i, I did listen to mate and ferris i was i don't know driving somewhere you know i found those a weird relationships where my wife actually listens to Rogan more than I do. But we're listening to Dr. Phil, whatever, talking about psychology. Let's see what he has to say. And one of the first things that he talks about with Rogan is the homeless problem in America, particularly California, Los Angeles. And the entire time, what is Dr. Phil talking about? He's talking about things that are true. He's talking about well, there's not enough housing. Uh, th th these people don't have the right resources. They need help. They need counseling. We need more affordable housing, maybe. Uh, you know, all these things that may be true. You know, it's the leftist governments that have come in charge and made it more okay. He's getting a little bit closer. And I'll give you a few minutes. I'll give you a few minutes to talk about the homeless problem, something I know a lot about. I'll give you a few minutes to talk about it. And uh, blame... A bunch of other things you know if he was talking about social media and how that's a problem and sure you could probably i'm sure social media probably has something to do with uh homelessness indirectly i'm not dr phil wasn't saying that specifically but you know things used to be different when it, when i was younger you know just these vague complaints about modern culture maybe there's some truth to it but again no no fundamental analysis so I'll give you a few minutes, but after a few minutes, if you're a doctor, if you're Dr. Phil, if you're a psychologist and you're talking about the homeless epidemic and you don't mention Thomas Saz and the myth of mental illness, not simply that book published in 1961, but what that book represents. I wrote about this on my, uh, on my website, uh, The American Insanity. What that book represents, it represents this postmodern shift in psychology that was, of course, happening before 1961. When Thomas Sayers wrote this, it was just uh, an, in, an instance. It was a marker of change that, uh, changes that had been happening and changes to come in the future. It was a marker. Uh, and what does Thomas Sayers say in this book? Myth of mental illness. He says mental illness is a myth. Show me bipolar. Show me schizophrenia. Point it to me. Point to me in the brain. It doesn't exist. That's what he was saying in the book. Of course, now they can point to it and say there it exists. But he, his uh, his point was, uh, you know, probably something that you learned in like a bad uh, '90s, uh, <laughs> a, a bad '90s show. I, I remember this was in. Uh, oof, this is going to be painful, but this is in, in uh, my so-called life, starring Clara Danes and. Um, that one dude, that hunky dude. I don't know if he's hunky. I guess he's more of a pretty boy. But there is this uh, part, this like two-show arc in that in that series, 
where Clara Danes runs into a homeless girl and she realizes that just because of bad luck, this uh, this 15-year-old girl is out on the streets homeless and she is not. And that, that there's no, no reason why that is. It's just luck of the draw. Just so happens to be that Clara Danes' character is not homeless. This other 15-year-old girl living on the street is. And it's just a, just a roll of the dice, right? Uh... Boy, how, how did I get off on that tangent? But anyways, Thomas Hass is talking about... Oh yeah, so mental illness has nothing to do with it. It's just a different way. It's just a different way of viewing the world. Schizophrenia is different. Bipolar is different. Who are we to say? Who are we to say that the bipolar is unhealthy and, uh, you know, not having bipolar? I don't know. Having well-regulated moods is healthy. Therefore... If these things don't actually exist, the institutionalization policies in America are unjust and we need to begin the deinstitutionalization of mental health hospitals in America. And that's exactly what happened. Not because of Thomas has his book so much. Again, that's just more of a marker, but about this intellectual trend that really started in the 50s, so a little bit before his book came out. Who are we to say? Just because these people cannot reality test well. Just because they're on drugs. Which, you know, that, that's another thing. When people talk about the homeless uh, situation and their population and how it's, you know, you hear numbers like 55% schizophrenic or 60% ha- are addicted to drugs. I don't know where you get these numbers from. It's 100%. 100 I would say 95% are schizophrenic. Everybody has a drug addiction. The other 5% has some other, probably somewhat serious uh, psychological issue. Bipolar two, I would imagine, uh, to be in the rest of those. You know, I, I work with these people. I, I know, I know what's going on. It's it's very clear. It's not some guy who's because if you're down on your luck, what well, what do you do? Call up your buddy. Like, uh, dude, can I sleep on your couch? You you go to your parents. You go to your uncle. You have relationships. When you, when you're sick, you know, when you have a difficult time regulating moods, and you you you. you it's, it's, such a difficult time regulating moods that you hallucinate. You're not going to have relationships. You're going to need to do drugs. I'm not blaming these people. They're sensitive people who've been traumatized. As Gabriel Malate would say, again, that's a fact he gets right. But Dr. Phil doesn't bring this up at all. He, he never mentions it. He never talks about the deinstitutionalization that happened in America over the past 70 years, why it continues to happen, why I lived in New York for eight years, I've had four really awful uh, run-ins with homeless people. Three of those came in the past, in the last six weeks I was there because de Blasio just did a prison depopulation campaign. You know, he, you know I, I talked about it on a podcast before. These people are mentally ill. They cannot reality test well. And, and what do I mean by reality testing? I think I used this example in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in my article. Because, you know, I used it in grad school one time and everybody laughed. Everybody thought it was funny. So I'm just trying to relive that moment. Reality testing is if you walk down the street with your pants down and somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, you know you're not supposed to walk down the street with your pants down. And you go, yeah, I know, I'm just being a, a retard, you know, I'm just being stupid. 
okay, that's reality testing. Right, you can understand socially how that's some, something we don't do. If you can't reality test well, then you walk down the street with your pants down. Same event, completely different intention. One person just needs to be put in the drunk tank. The other person, they need to get their mental health evaluated against their will, even if they're not doing anything technically illegal, especially in San Francisco when you can walk around butt naked and there's no law against it. There's that uh, naked bike parade <laughs> every year. And it's like, the, the worst part about that is it's not like, it, you know, because it's all old people. I saw it when I was living there. It's not old, all old people, right? I mean, it is mostly old people. But then you look at the old people on their bicycle seats. You, you think about that poor bicycle seat. <laughs> I mean, if I... If I was a, like rode a bicycle naked, that bike, that bike, I couldn't clean that bike seat. I just have to burn it, and I'd have to uh, exercise all the demons from there. It's gonna be like the ark when they open it up at the end of Indiana Jones and Reigns of the Lost Ark. It's gonna be like these ghosts, woo, flying out. Uh, so that's reality testing, right? And we have really great tests. We have really great tests to determine whether you can reality test accurately. And they detect malingering quite well. It's not perfect, but we don't use them and we're not allowed to hold people against their will. Well, you can for maybe a few days, depending on the state. It's very difficult to hold somebody against their will for an extended period of time. They have to really commit a crime and, you know, an act of violence. Um, so that's why we have the homeless epidemic. Yeah, there's a, there's a housing shortage. Maybe social media has something to do with it. Do we need more counselors? I don't know. I, there, there's plenty. Of, I, I mean, that's the thing in graduate school. It, like, there's graduate students just sitting around without enough hours. So, there, there's plenty of people, you know, to help them with the counseling. Maybe what we lack is the moral authority as a field to say this behavior is incorrect. Or the intention behind this behavior is incorrect. The intention behind this behavior is correct. We lack the philosophical foundation as a field. And the real world result of that is the deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities. I mean, they've been reduced by, I think I said in that article, I looked it up, 95%. The deinstitutionalization and that book, The Myth of, of Mental... Now, look, there's other books like The Myth of Mental Illness. And you're going to point to, to me if, if you know facts but don't understand context. For whatever reason, that book made the biggest splash. You know, that was the, the 5% that got 95% of the intention, attention. So that's what you look to as like some cultural touchstone of, of something that happened. As an indication of what is going on in this field, that, that is w what has been going on in the field for a couple generations at that point already in 1961. So nothing Dr. Phil said was wrong. But I really need to question. And it's right for me to question because Dr. Phil and Mate are the leaders in this field. I'm some irrelevant retard. So it is, a, it is important for me to question and say, dude, do you even understand the homeless situation? Because if you did, I think you would bring up this point, even though nothing that you said was technically wrong. Dr. Mate, do you even understand 
what it takes to raise emotionally healthy children. Do you even understand brain development? Yes, nothing you say in either the Rogan podcast or the Tim Ferriss podcast that I listen to, nothing that you say is wrong, but there are these key issues that you just, I'd have to just assume you don't really understand the issue because you don't get the fundamentals. And I'm not even blaming Dr. Phil and Gabriel Mate. They're both old. They're, they're, I think uh, they're both in their 70s. They're not going to get what I'm saying. They've been thinking about it in this one way for a long enough time. You know, Dr. Phil has been complaining about social media so much he doesn't even hear what I'm saying. That's fine. But it's my job as the unpopular, irrelevant, therefore, you know, more likely to adhere to truth and not to cater to political feelings at the time. Like I, and I know that's what uh, Gabriel Mate is doing. We'll, we'll put a pin in that. It's my responsibility as the irrelevant guy to say, you know, as, as the child, you know, pointing out the emperor has no clothes. The, uh, you know, the advisor, the, the emperor's uh, buddy, you know, his, his brother-in-law, who, who he gave this sweet sinecure, he can't punk that out because he loses his job. The kid on the street, the totally irrelevant kid on the street, he can point that out. This is how we grow and evolve. I hope, I hope when I am in my 70s, I mean, if I just make it to my 70s, that's a success, right? But I hope when I am in my 70s and I am talking about this, some younger retard at the time is able to point out, I'm probably not saying anything that's incorrect, like I say, but it's not complete. There needs to be somebody out there to point out where what I'm saying is not complete. And that's what I'm doing now, it's important. Right, what Nietzsche says, the voice of disappointment, I listen for an echo and hear nothing but praise. I would rephrase that and say, I listen for criticism and hear nothing but an echo or praise. So <clears throat> that's what, uh, yeah, and, and I put the pin in the, the Mate political point. And that's obviously what Dr. Mate is doing, especially in this Tim Ferriss podcast, is he's placating popular uh, political opinion. He is placating political norms, talking about how what causes our mental dysfunction, what makes us quote-unquote abnormal is an abnormal, toxic society. That's what causes it. You know, how marginalized you are as a group, that's what causes it. And like the CRT thing, of course those things play a part. Of course there's toxic parts about psychology. There always will be er, about society. There always will be toxic parts about society. That's going to happen. You get any group, any two group of people together, even if one of them is me, and I'm already agreeing with that group less because there's somebody else in that group. There's always going to be disagreements. There's always going to be problems. That's not the question. And that's not the reason why you have an issue. And if you do say that, I must question how fundamentally you really understand the field of psychology. Wow, this episode's gone on a long time. We'll be wrapping it up here. Right, I gotta question it. Uh, yeah. Just not looking at the fundamentals. Same thing with the CRT thing. It's not the toxic society. Yes, the toxic society has had some effect on you. 
It has influenced you to some degree. Of course it has. But if therapy is going to be a field, we need to look at, yes, you were influenced. Now you have that issue because you were influenced by toxic society, culture, because your parents are influenced by a toxic culture, whatever. You have an issue. The reason why you still have that issue is because you don't know how to manage that issue. That's the reason, ultimately. It's not your parents, it's not society. That's maybe some fundamental cause, but that's not why you still have the issue. You have the issue because you don't know how to work through it. And then when Dr. Mate talks about how to work through the issue, it's just like some vagary about feeling the emotion. And of course, you need to do that. You got to feel emotions. You need to validate and accept your emotions. That's step one, maybe step two. I would argue there's three more definitive steps in processing emotion. First of all, before you can even talk about the emotion, what's the situation? Get the facts out there. Then you can become to talk about then you can start to talk about the emotion with more clarity. Then why? Why do you have the emotion? What does that emotion mean to you? And then how is that emotion your responsibility? And optional, what's the next step based on this? I mean, what could potentially be, of course, my favorite question, perhaps the most annoying question in all of therapy is, what are you able to do? It's so annoying because we wanna be stuck. We, we wanna be stuck because that justifies the neurosis, that justifies our lack of success in relationships and health, everything. But, what do you, but you, when you ask yourself, what are you able to do? It's essentially saying, there's always something you can do, even if it's not a big thing. What are you able to do given your understanding of the facts, your feeling, your emotion? Why you have that emotion? No. What does that emotion mean to you? And then responsibility that's for. And by the way, three and four, you can't really do that until you even understand your psychological loop. Like, why do you even have a low self-esteem in the first place? Does that just happen out of the blue? Is it just society? Or no, there's some regulatory process in there. There's some relationship between your consciousness and liberty that perpetuates the issue. And in therapy, what we got to do is go in and figure out exactly what that is. And if you don't talk about that, when you have some whatever big national interview on, on YouTube, I'm going to question. I'm really going to question. And I'm right to do that. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for these questions, for your criticism. I appreciate it all. Animus at AnimusEmpire.com. If you have a question, we do consultations as well if you want to reach out and learn more about what we do learn more about how yeah mate you may be right but doesn't matter well what does matter that's what we can help you with to learn what ultimately matters about therapy i think it comes down to three things um you know as i say elsewhere it's uh honesty excuse me it's it's a uh, honesty <laughs> How to talk through issues and if you just say the facts of a situation what you think are the facts that's not necessarily honest that is a very um <clears throat> low bar for honesty then there's your loop then there's the unconscious processes that happen that lead to your dysfunction let's say it's low self-esteem lack of confidence um you know i had this porn addiction I, you know i had this alcohol addiction 
that is not a cur in itself. And it's not because your parents are a sick society. There is an intermediary process in there, and that's you. That's you not managing your emotions well. That's fine. It's not your fault. Nobody's really talked to you about it. And when psychologists or psychiatrists do go on these popular shows and talk about it, they, re- they, don't, they don't even talk about it. So there's this process there that you need to be a part of. of and then there's a ritual. How do you develop a ritual based on what your fundamental emotional issue is and how it would be possible for you to talk through it in a way to help you uh, more and more, just on a consistent basis, become more aware of that issue so it begins to affect you less outside your conscious awareness. Guys, I have another analogy I wrote. I I totally forgot. I have another analogy. I'm not going to do it. This has already been 40 minutes plus. I think I just got really excited about this Egypt trip, and I know I'm not going to be talking to you guys for a while, so maybe I just unconsciously wanted to give you more content, even if that content is just me rambling about, you know, stupid fart analogies. So, yeah, like I said, we do consultations. AnimusEmpire.com slash schedule email. Animus at AnimusEmpire.com. There's a contact form on the website. Uh, there's comments below on this video. Uh, you can find me on Spotify. Thank you, guys. I will talk to you the uh, week of the 27th. And until then, remember, it's not enough to know the facts. We also need to know the proper context in which to put those facts. <laughs>